Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Today we're excited to bring you a new bi-monthly roundtable discussion with the UBS Chief Investment Office Fixed Income Team. I'll take a moment to introduce to you who is joining us for this month's conversation, the kickoff segment. We do have Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy Americas, Leslie Falconia. Leslie will be serving as today's moderator. Joining us as well, Senior Fixed Income Strategists for the Americas, Frank Saleo, Alina Gallant, as well as Barry McAlinden. And then we also have with us Senior Municipal Strategist for the Americas, Kathleen McNamara, joining as well. So with that, welcome everyone. Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead the roundtable. Welcome. Uh, Thanks very much, Dan. You know, I appreciate it. And how we're going to have this work is that on a bi-monthly basis, you know, we're going to look to have the taxable, except Kathleen has to play a dual role of taxable and tax exempt in terms of the municipal market, but we're going to try and get together, talk about the uh, markets at hand, and hopefully really hone in on, as as we have a year, that we'll have some, you know, some answers in terms of the Fed, but also a, a continued volatility in terms of how we are positioning our fixed income portfolio in 2023. So just as a quick, you know, as I start off, I just want to just take a big picture look at how we are positioned into the year. Many of us have written several publications um, in regards to our positioning, where our favorite asset classes are, our sectors and positioning on the curve. But just as a, a sort of a, a top-level point of view is that, you know, obviously, given the aggressiveness of the Fed in 2022, and there was a large underperformance in, in risk assets, which we are all aware of. And although we do believe that you'll have a type of mirror where, you know, fixed income will do very well this year, we are not as we're not we're banking on the fact that it's going to be just sort of a steady as she goes. Fixed income is just going to naturally outperform because it did so poorly in 22. And we're really p- picking our sectors and we're looking at places on the curve. So how we came into the year is the expectation that interest rates over the course of the year will decline. And, and our expectation is the 10-year Treasury yield will end 2023 at about 3%. And we also have this up in quality bias, given the fact that the opportunity set within fixed income had widened so dramatically in 2022. We are earning yield and income that we haven't seen in some in some sectors in over 10 years. With that said, I mean, you know, although we went in a bit long our interest rate exposure, this won't be a straight line. And because we've seen such aggressiveness in the first part of January, and a lot of this has been based on the market's expectation. That the Fed will not is not only close to the terminal rate, but will have a much lower terminal rate, meaning that they'll stop hiking rates when the Fed fund rate is about 485. The market's also expecting that this slower growth will be the dominant factor, and in turn, the Fed will have to ease. In the second half of the year, the market's pricing in 50 basis points of easing in 23, you know, about another 150 in 24. So right now we're under this sort of umbrella of what I would consider somewhat of a Goldilocks scenario where the Fed will have a longer, a much lower terminal. The higher for longer uh, expectation will not be the case and they will pivot quickly. And that is what the market is pricing in right now. Our expectation and our view is a little bit deviated in the sense that we do expect growth to slow in the second half of 23, but we don't believe that the inflation or the concern over inflation is necessarily over and it's way too early to raise that victory flag. 
We still have services at shelter rising. We still have a three and a half percent unemployment rate and, and you know, a, a labor market that the Fed still wants to see tighten. We've seen tremendous loosening in financial conditions. And although we do have a lower tenure treasury yield, high quality bias, we just don't think it's going to be a straight line in 2023. So with that said, I'm going to kick it off and go to Kathleen McNamara and just ask her a couple of questions. And, and again, Kathleen, you know, given her expertise and her, you know, incredible knowledge on, on both, both areas of municipal, she's going to be having a dual role in these kinds of, of podcasts. And I really look forward to hearing her point of view. So Kathleen, I just want to start out, you know, you know, very quickly as, as we look at sort of, you know, both sides of the coin of the muni market heading into 2023. Um, Given our expectations that yields will decline over the course of the year, like what is your outlook for, say, the taxable muni side versus uh, non-taxable? Thanks, Leslie, for having me join the call. I'm happy to discuss our views on our munis. Um, you know, fortunately, following a very tough year, the market environment for munis has brightened quite a bit um, for 2023. Should U.S. benchmark yields decline from current levels, as you just mentioned, that would be supportive to future muni performance, including both the tax-exempt side as well as the taxable muni side. What we're seeing is that the higher yields now on offer compared to one year ago are now renewing interest from municipal bond investors. In the space of only two and a half short weeks, Munis have already snapped back, posting strong gains across segments. Thus far in January, tax-exempt munis and taxable munis are posting gains of 2.1% and 5.4% respectively. In the near term, we believe that munis as a whole can continue to improve, reflecting better investor demand and relatively stable yields. That said, we expect the rally in tax-exempts to cool in March, reflecting a boost in expected new issue supply, which is consistent with historical trends. By contrast, I expect taxable munis to continue to benefit from scarcity value in the months ahead. Um, just as a point of reference, the uh, pace of taxable muni issuance was down by over 50% in 2022. So that impact from scarcity value should last a bit longer. So Kathleen, when you think about it, that's actually that leads to my, to my next question in terms of that issuance. And we all know that, you know, as with many fixed income sectors, you know, flow of funds, supply and interest rates are really part of those performance drivers. But that's particularly the case in the municipal market. So sort of what are your expectations, you know, in regards to those drivers, you know, going forward in the year ahead? I mean, that's right, Leslie. I mean, although the performance of municipal bonds hinges heavily on the behavior of U.S. Treasury benchmark yields, in particular, the magnitude at which they move, there are also a variety of muni-specific factors that have important implications for future tax-exempt debt returns. As you mentioned, the pace of new issues supply, direction open-end mutual fund flows, credit spreads, volatility, and municipal treasury yield ratios make that list. For 2023, we anticipate supply-demand dynamics to be favorable, much more favorable compared to one year ago. In credit, we expect fundamentals for U.S. public finance issuers to remain relatively stable in the first half. But as the year progresses, we would not be surprised to see credit quality spreads begin to move wider, reflecting mounting recessionary concerns. And with respect to municipal treasury yield ratios, I mean, one of the things I'm looking at right now is the fact that parts of the muni market, in particular short-dated bonds, are now very expensive relative to taxable debt. Against that backdrop, we favor positioning assets in high-quality muni sectors, such as state general obligation, electric utilities, and essential service water and sewer that can prove resilient through an economic downturn. 
Although high-yield municipals have performed exceptionally well in the past two and a half weeks, we do believe that caution is warranted at that weakest end of the credit spectrum and totally is greater visibility on the direction of the U.S. economy. We also note that at present, short-term taxable debt offers better value than tax-exempt municipals inside five years. By contrast, at the intermediate and longer portion of the curve, high-grade munis continue to have the edge on a tax-adjusted basis. Thank you, Kathleen. I appreciate it. And I just now I think it's a great time to switch to, you know, what, what we consider uh, muni's uh, RV counterpart, which is investment-grade corporates. And Barry, I want to just shift it over to you, really, on that note. And you know, as we know, investment-grade corporates had a very difficult year in 2022, but entering into 2023, they've, they've been, like become the fan favorite of of asset classes to invest in with multiple types of investors. So when we think about that, how are we positioned and what is your outlook in 23 for, for investment-grade corporates and how, how can investors take advantage of that higher quality? Right. Thanks, Leslie. Um, yeah, I think higher quality really embraces what uh, really the, the companies in the investment-grade corporate markets, um, you know, are all about. Uh, you know, in order to get an investment-grade rating, um, you're really talking about companies that have diverse business profiles. Um, you know, they're, they tend to be strong generators of cash flow and their debt maturity profiles are largely uh, termed out. So we think the asset class is well positioned for that up in quality bias. Um, you know, and I think that a gradual deterioration in, in growth for the economy, you know, should be okay from, you know, the, the standpoint of the issuers within this market. So right now, um, you're earning a yield, which is about 5% across the entire maturity spectrum uh, in investment grade. Now, now, most of that comes from treasuries uh, based on, you know, the, the rise in benchmark yields that took place last year. Um, but but I think that, you know, the, the fact that you have that treasury buffer, even though we do think spreads could move a bit wider from where they are now, um, that uh, that treasury buffer, you know, provides, uh, you know, decent risk return trade-off for uh, how the asset class should perform for the rest of the year. And in CIO, you know, our positioning, and, and Leslie, you really drive, uh, the, you know, this uh, tactical approach, but it's a barbell of both uh, the short end investment grade as well as the intermediate range of about seven to ten years. And, you know, right now, the, when you talk about the very short end, like one to three years, again, you earn that 5% yield when you don't have to, to go uh, out far on the curve to earn that. So the um, likelihood of a, of a Price, suffering price losses like you did last year are very low on that short end. So we, we do think that the, you know, the value proposition is good for that carry on the short end. And again, in intermediate maturities, we think over the course of the year, that duration, you know, should be uh, beneficial from a total return standpoint. And you can earn, you know, carry plus some price appreciation in that intermediate section as well. That, that sounds right. Thank you, Barry. And you know what's interesting, Barry, too, is that we all, we all, you know, investors always hear about, you know, financials versus non-financials. Sometimes when the popular press talks about investment-grade corporates, and you know, we know that we had bank earnings out. We know that even, you know, parts of the IG curve might be more exposed to financials over non-financials. You know, how are you looking at this, and how do you feel that we should be, be positioned into 2023 in regarding these sectors? Yeah, we we do like financials, specifically large U.S. banks within investment grade credit, both from a fundamental standpoint as well as based on their relative valuation. You know, fundamentally, um, you know, as we know, like U.S. bank profitability, when we're just going through the uh, earnings reports for the fourth quarter, they're actually um, quite robust. Um, and they've really been a beneficiary of, of the higher interest rate environment. So that's allowed them to accumulate capital, and that's a cushion to absorb uh, losses, uh, you know, in terms of the equity cushion. 
I think one thing that maybe is not uh, fully um, realized uh, in the marketplace, though, is that the large banks also have to adhere to a certain amount of debt on their balance sheet, and that's part of regulation. It's called total loss absorbing capacity. And that means that uh, they're always in, in a new issue marketplace raising new debt, uh, and that adds a bit of a supply-demand technical on top of the, the fundamental uh, aspects that drive you know, their spread movement. And I think for that reason, because they're such active primary issuers, their spreads uh, do uh, tend to be a bit maybe wider than they should be given their strong fundamentals. And, you know, we view that as, as an opportunity. I mean, we'll see the relationship kind of ebb and flow a little bit. Um, bank spreads were a bit wider than non-financials last fall. That's normalized, but you're, you're still, you're not giving up yield to be in, you know, U.S. bank credit quality, which is single A. And we, we really view that favorably uh, in terms of uh, just kind of from a relative value standpoint. So I know, you know, many investors are exposed to bank credit risk, whether it be from uh, their equity portfolios, preferred securities, but even within credit, um, you know, certainly we see the large U.S. banks as uh, being core positions and, and even, um, you know, we'd recommend a kind of overweighting relative to benchmarks for the reasons that we cited. That's great, Barry. Thank you. Uh, that, was, that was a great synopsis. And, you know, as we sort of move from these bullet cash flows, let's, I want to sort of shift over to, to those types of instruments that might have a little bit more uh, drift in terms of average life. And that's over to you, Frank, and regards to preferred. And just with, and just with that overall, I mean, we know that, you know, in 2022, there was not only a large basis point rise in interest rate, but the magnitude, but the velocity of that interest rate increase had had went to performance for preferred and many other asset classes, but particularly those that have a tendency to, you know, add on interest rate risk when yields are going higher. So now that we sit at the level that we are in terms of U.S. interest rates and with the expectation that growth was slow and we might see interest rates decline to 3% at the end of the year, you know, how are you sort of guiding investors in terms of, you know, allocation to fixed versus floating preferred? Well, that's, that's a great question because, you, you know, you touched on the experience last year and, and, uh, and, and where do we go from here? And basically, you know, the, the big headwind to performance for preferreds last year was the inherent uh, interest rate sensitivity in the group against the backdrop of that, you know, epic surge in interest rates that we saw in 2020, uh, 2022. Um, and, and so it does bring up the point about duration. Uh, generally, uh, uh, preferreds are perpetual. So the duration can be very long. Their rate sensitivity can be very high. On the other hand, they're callable. So when yields are low and we're in a, a low market yield environment like we are in 2020 and 2021, call probability rises. And because of that optionality, duration ac actually shrinks. But the opposite occurs as interest rates rise and as market yields rise Um and and duration in in that case extends and that's exactly what we saw last year. So the the sector duration right now is about eight years. That's up from six years uh, a year ago and four at the end of 2020. So rate sensitivity sensitivity has definitely risen. But you know, so where do things stand now? Where where does that leave us now? That duration extension has basically, for the most part, run its course. Most preferreds are actually trading. Um, below par so they're they're already trading like long duration assets and uh, duration for the sector by and large is essentially as high as it's going to get um and secondly in terms of expectations to your point you know um given our more favorable rate expectations from here that higher duration 
can actually work in our favor and become a tailwind this year instead of a headwind like it was last year. And the third point to keep in mind uh, is, is positioning and, and structures. In terms of the structures that have the longest duration and that would actually benefit the most from declining rates, those would be discounted fixed rate preferreds. Um, but in terms of positioning, we actually think it makes sense to remain more diversified in terms of coupon and structure so that we can be better positioned for a variety of outcomes. Um, you know, we are expecting a benign rate environment, as you outlined uh, at the at the top of the call. But if we assume, for example, that the Fed pauses um, but keeps rates relatively high, again, like you were saying, you know, as you said earlier, it remains to be seen if, if the Fed is going to be cutting rates to the extent that the market expects. So if, uh, if the Fed keeps rates actually higher, then floating rate preferreds make a lot of sense here, especially those that are trading at at a discount, these offer the potential for either high yield to call if these preferreds get called uh, in the near term, or the potential to see their coupons reset considerably higher if they're not called. We're talking about coupon resets uh, to the level of 8% or more. Um, it's also important to note in terms of positioning, that eight-year duration that I referenced earlier, that pertains to the fixed-rate preferred sector, but these variable-rate preferreds, fixed afloats and such, um, duration has remained consistently lower in that segment of the preferred market, the closer to three to four years. So, Leslie, I would say overall in terms of recommended positioning, it still makes sense to diversify exposure by taking advantage of a variety of structures, a variety of coupon types, fixed-rate and, and variable-rate. Yeah, I, I agree, Frank, and I think you really hit the nail on the head-to-head -head with the diversification. We all know there's still a lot of unknowns this year, so there's no question that diversification is definitely the key. But I did want to ask you just a question that's something that Kathleen and I were discussing earlier, is that when we talk about these flow of funds and how, even for a short-term basis, they can be a either positive, negative contribution to, to short-term returns. So when you think about the flow of funds into the sector, particularly as we look at, you know, some of the activity we saw last year. How are you looking at that in terms of 2023, and how do you think this will influence returns over the yeah. next, you know, 10, 11 months? Yeah, it's a great point. The, the, the fund flows are really important for the preferred space, particularly because it's one of the smaller markets. Uh, the preferred market is only about, I would say, uh, the, the U.S. preferred market is only about 15% of the size of the high-yield market, for example, and a fraction of the size of some of these, budget, you know, the U.S. government market, et cetera. So fund flows can be very important, particularly flows into preferred ETFs, um, and, and they can really provide the, the third major driver of performance behind uh, interest rate movements and, and spreads, of course. But there's two points to keep in mind. Most ETFs that specialize in preferreds focus on exchange-listed preferreds. These are $25 par preferreds. And again, that's a relatively small market. We're only talking about a $200 billion market size uh, here in the U.S. And preferred ETFs, they account for about 15 to 17% of that $25 par preferred market. Uh, the second point to keep in mind is that these ETFs generally tend to be passively managed. Uh, and they're based on index. their indexes, their index funds. So flows into and out of these preferred ETFs can create forced buying or forced selling. So when you put the two together, together the, the concentration uh, within the preferred space of these ETFs and the passive management, the flows into these ETFs can really 
impact performance. And what we saw last year is that preferred ETF experienced 39 weeks of outflow in 2022. So except for a, a period of time during the summer months when we saw uh, several weeks of, of inflow, I think it was six straight weeks of inflow during the summer months, by and large floor, flows were consistently negative throughout 2022. They averaged, uh, the weekly outflows averaged 150 million. So again, that was a, a headwind, another headwind to performance in 2022. Looking out to 2023, as rates stabilize, as investors realize that interest rates and market yields are, have likely peaked or are close to peaks, um, where they are now, probably not going to be going too much higher from here. We may actually see investors start to revert back to that uh, reach for yield that we've seen so many times over the past 10 years, 20 years in, in, in the fixed income markets. And with yields of about 6% or so, preferreds are looking pretty attractive here. So I'd expect to see more consistently positive inflows this year, and that could provide an additional uh, tailwind to the sector, adding to the more stable interest rate environment. Great. Thanks, Anchor. I appreciate the commentary. And, and now with our last five or six minutes left, I just want to switch over to, you know, Alina and their, the high-yield side of our equation, which is, you know, as you know, a very a core asset for us. Um, not only, not always a favorable one, but a core asset within our, our house portfolios as well. And, you know, as we discussed earlier, we talked about some of the incredible carry and yield that um, investors can earn this year. And as we think about what's happened with high yield, that's, you know, 50 basis points, you know, tighter in the first, you know, 19 days. How are you viewing high yield right now in terms of, you know, potential spread volatility over the course of the year? Hi, Leslie. Uh, yields certainly are higher now than what we have become accustomed to over the past 10 years. Although they are down over the past three months, we were at 9.5% yield in October and we're down at 8% now, but that is still historically high. However, when we look at spreads, they're really not remarkable right now. The spread currently is 420 basis points. And that is tighter than the 10-year average spread of 448 basis points. Now, normally, during periods of volatility, spreads widen well above this level. During the last hiking cycle of 2018, for example, high-yield spreads widened to 540 basis points. And during the commodity crisis of 15-16, they were as wide as 900 basis points. So when we look at relative value, the risk-reward and high yield right now is really not that attractive. I look at it relative to investment grade. So the spread ratio of high yield to investment grade right now is 3.2 times. This is tighter than the historical average ratio of 3.4 times. So at these levels, we think that spreads really are not fully reflecting a slower economic environment that we may be going into. And so for that reason, we expect volatility to persist in 2023. So far this year, the market has been focused on improvements in inflation that we have seen through the CPI numbers and a potential Fed pause, which, of course, have helped spreads grind tighter, as you mentioned. But if you look at the other economic indicators, if you look at PMIs and the potential for the economic slowdown, then spreads really should be wider. So ultimately, we believe the volatility will persist this year, but investors should take advantage of opportunities presented by market sell-offs. That's great. And, you know, and, and we, when we think about that opportunity, Elena, I wanted to ask you, because, 
you know, <clears throat> you know, even prior to the you know 50, 60 base points of tightening that we've seen in the first you know 19 days of the year, there's always been for, for, for at least the past couple months this diverging view as to whether or not you know the Fed's going to you know reverse course really quickly, you know, creating a little bit more um, accommodation, you know, whether or not they'll have to actually the terminal rate will go higher than what the market's expecting. So in other words, that picking your spots in terms of high yield has really been a familiar term even prior to this 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 tightening, and, and particularly as we look at what's happening with certain sectors in 2022, such as energy. So I wanted to ask you, when you think about that and the potential of a recession, you know, the probability increase in the latter part of, of 23, at least that's the market's expectation, you know, what areas of opportunity do you see adding value the most over 2023? So as I mentioned earlier, we think volatility will be here in 2023, and especially if signs of material economic weakness emerge. So what typically happens during market downturns is that there are dislocations and you have strong companies that tend to widen in sympathy with the overall market. And this is where I think the best opportunities will be this year. So we have actually identified a basket of companies in high yield that we believe are high quality. These are stable credits. And they can withstand, we believe, that they can withstand a weaker economic environment. And in this basket, we have a variety of industries in there. We have autos, we have basics, we have some industrials, some consumer goods, food companies, energy, etc. Now, the main idea was not necessarily to do sector selection, but the main idea was to find companies that we know have solid balance sheets, that we know could withstand a slower economic environment, or that maybe have some credit-improving attributes, such as still benefiting from COVID recovery, for example, or from China reopening. Now, let me just say this up front. We do not think that right now there's attractive valuation in these credits. In fact, the pickup in yield today on this basket of names relative to the triple B index is only 20 basis points right now. This is not sufficient in our view. However, if the market sells off and these credits widen accordingly as we expect, then they would be good, interesting investment opportunities, mainly because these are high-quality companies and we know that they can withstand an economic downturn. Well, thank you, Elena. I appreciate that. And, and now that we are right at the half hour mark, um, I just wanted to thank everyone for, for participating in this podcast. And again, I mean, we're going to try and make this on a, you know, bi-monthly basis. And as, there's going to be multiple topics that come up throughout the year, given the unknowns that we're seeing, not only in the U.S., but globally. So we look, we look forward to our next podcast. And thanks for everyone for joining. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment 
investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.